welcome back to Muppets in Space, a Farscape rewatch podcast on the incomparable. Tonight we are covering season one, episode 13, The Flax, and episode 14, Jeremiah Crichton. I'm your host, Eric Scott, and joining me as always, my fellow co-host, someone who does actually live out in the middle of nowhere, Jason Johnson. Yeah, uh, don't mind me. I'm just making myself at home out here by the water. It's nice. I've got a little campsite set up, some fire. Good to go. The hurricane passed by you, no problem. So Yeah, yeah, yeah. We didn't even catch any rain or wind off that. It was nice. And uh, this will be your final reminder for Season 1 that we are following the Wikipedia episode order for Season 1, not the Amazon Prime order, since Amazon flipped things around here and there. And I, I did actually compare the list, and this is the last time in Season 1 that the orders are different. So after this, no more warning, you know, episode 15 and 16 and on, everything's in the same order. So no more confusion and jumping around, wondering what we're talking about when you watch the wrong episode that we watched and that kind of stuff. All right. So without further ado, let's get into episode 13, The Flex. Aaron is teaching John how to fly a transport pod so he can get more familiar with Leviathan technology and technology, I guess, in that part of the universe. But it's kind of taken him a while to get the hang of it. Meanwhile, on Moya, Rigel is bored. And Dargo is angry that parts of Moya are starting to smell because of her pregnancy, or as we call it, continuity. Aaron says she's teaching Crichton in the hope that someday he'll end up being some use to her in battle. The pod that they're in gets pulled towards something and hits some kind of net. They can't go forward or backward, and the pod gets damaged. Sensors say there's nothing out there, but something is definitely blocking their view. Back on Moya, Zan, Rigel, and Dargo are bickering, so a pilot, quote-unquote, accidentally, hits the wrong button to make a noise and get their attention. He says a ship is approaching with weapon pieces on board, but nothing usable. Uh, on board that ship was a Senaton garbologist named Stans, who says they need him, but if Dargo kills him, Zan will be angry that he killed the man they needed. He knows that they are headed for the Flax, a magna drift mesh, 75 million Zacrons long. And I looked up Zacron, and it doesn't really say what that is, so we have no idea how big that is. But 75 million of them must be pretty big. It's invisible to sensors, though, and was put there by Zenitan pirates. Zan says she'll warn Crichton and Aaron. Stans notices Rigel's Tedic board and tells Rigel he also plays that game. Rigel says maybe Stans could give him some pointers. Aaron tells Crichton that they're not moving at all, no drift or anything. Uh, there's no comms signal, even though it's working, and but the power is being drained. Zan says they're not responding and wonders what Stans will want in return for his help. Dargo says he wants anything he can get. Dargo accesses the Peacekeeper criminal records on board Moya and finds out that Stans has quite a record, so he wants him off the ship immediately. Rigel says he's got him right where he wants him in the game when Dargo interrupts, grabbing Stans and asking why he has a criminal record. Stans says he used to be a pirate, but he's not anymore. Zan tells him two of their crew are out there somewhere and they can't find them. Meanwhile, Aaron manages to send a message buoy out while Crichton restores some power. Dargo, meanwhile, notices Stans is wearing Luxon boots and locks him up, saying that a Luxon would never leave his boots unless he was dead. Stan says he was already dead, killed by the pirates. Dargo asks him to take him to the, that Luxon ship since he needs some map fibers. If he gets them, Stan's can have everything else on board the Luxon ship. Back on the pod, Aaron and Crichton are trying to escape the Flax, but they end up getting swung back and doing even more damage to the pod. Crichton puts out some fires that developed while Aaron tries to get her foot loose from being stuck under some debris. Zan, meanwhile, has received the message buoy when Dargo says he and Stan's are leaving on, the Stan on Stan's vessel. Dargo says they'll spend no longer than an Arn on the Luxon ship and then go get Aaron and Crichton. However, they have to avoid the pirate leader, Kratzik's scanner. They do, but Kratzik's ship is headed towards Moya. On board, Zan greets them, and Kratzik says they're lucky that the Leviathan is pregnant or he would commandeer it. 
When asked, Xan tells him she has no stands and introduces them to Rigel. Back on the pod, Crichton says the environmental controls and environmental systems are damaged and they can't use the repair torch because of the pure oxygen buildup. It would set the pod on fire. Aaron says they can depressurize the bay and get in their spacesuits and have enough air. But then part of the superstructure or something falls and Crichton pushes her out of the way and falls on top of her in the process. Uh, she jokingly says, are you comfortable? Can I get you a pillow? Meanwhile, Stanza's ship has stopped and when they manage to get it going again, they also get caught in the flags. Back on Moya, Rigel is playing Kratchik and when he starts losing, he says he knows what he's doing. Back on the pod, only one of the two helmets from their environmental suits is undamaged, which means only one of them will have air. Aaron shows John chemicals called a kill shot and a nerve shot, which will kill her, but allow her to be revived later after Crichton repairs the environmentals. Unfortunately, Crichton says that it was his helmet that was damaged and he won't fit inside Aaron's helmet. So he tells her what to do to fix the environmentals because they don't have much time to wait for the others to come rescue them. Back on Moya, Rigel uses uh, one of Stanza's moves during the game, and Kratchik questions him and asks where he learned that because he knows somebody else who uses that same move. Back on the sh- uh, pod, Crichton tells Aaron he doesn't trust the kill shot, so he teaches her CPR, just in case. Back on the Stanza ship, Stanza manages to dissolve a small particle of the flax, and they break through and continue on towards the Luxon ship. Back on the pod, Aaron gives Crichton the kill shot, which starts to take effect. On Moya, Rigel loses again to Kratchik, but says he wants one more game. He says he'll wager Moya, but Kratchik doesn't want it, Moya. So for some reason, he agrees to wager the location of Stans instead, much to Zan's dismay and shock and, I guess, anger. Back on the pod, Aaron runs out of time during her work and, instead of finishing, decides to resuscitate Crichton with a nerve shot, but on her way towards him, she gets knocked out. Meanwhile, Rigel thinks he's won the game, but in fact, Kratchik wins and wants information on Stans' whereabouts. Rigel says they can find him by following their comm frequency, which is in Moya's data store. Aaron wakes up to find out that the vial containing the nerve shot was smashed, so she starts CPR on John. Back on Stanza's ship, they find the Luxon ship, an assault piercer, which Dargo says he dreamt of serving on as a boy. Crichton, meanwhile, starts breathing again, okay, and says Aaron lied that kill shot hurt like hell. <laughs> Unfortunately, they've got half an arm of air left. Kratchik and the other pirate leave Moya, and Zan is angry with Rigel again. But he says that he told Pilot the moment Kretchik arrived to change the frequency of the comms, so they're headed to someplace far away. He lost on purpose, knowing that Kretchik wouldn't leave with nothing. Back on Sansa's ship, Sans says that Dargo will soon have his own piercer, and tells him to think of all the maps he'll get, and he'll be able to find his son. Dargo says that when he does, though, he wants to be able to look him in the eye, because he's having second thoughts about going to the ship versus rescuing Crichton and Aaron. Back on the pod, Crichton tells Aaron that she should have saved herself, but she says she chose not to be alone. She says she does not want to die alone. Then they turn and kiss each other, but they don't stop there, ripping off parts of each other's spacesuits and rolling on the floor, when suddenly Dargo walks in with a priceless look on his face. Awkwardly, Crichton asks what took him so long, so Dargo says he needed someone to help him. He's tied up Stans because he's merely annoying. Stans asks if Dargo will go with him, to which Dargo merely laughs. Stans says he's lonely, everybody needs a mate. After odd looks, he says he's the female of his species. In fact, she's considered quite the zenithin beauty. Dargo is speechless and still leaves him tied to his flight control chair on his ship. Back on Moya, Zan asks Dargo what happened, and he says his indecision nearly cost Crichton and Aaron their lives. He says he barely saved them, and he may have given up his only chance to ever see his son. Aaron and Crichton try to make excuses for what happened back on the pod, and he says it'll never happen again, to which she also replies, never again. Crichton asks, though, just to be certain if she's the female of the species, and kind of off-camera but implied, she kind of grabs his crotch, which he takes as a yes, and they both smile. The end. Some trivia about this episode. Rockney Abandon, one of the creators, remembered that this episode was like a crucible. We put two people in one spot and saw how they functioned and survived. It was a really good Crichton and Aaron episode, 
and we got to see the sacrifices that one would make for the other. It was a window on the relationship that was to come. And speaking of that, he also admitted that he thought Crichton and Aaron would get together from the start, but it was never set in stone. He told the writing staff that any of these relationships can go anywhere, and a lot of that is going to be dependent upon the actors' chemistries with each other. Although he did go on to point out that Aaron and John are soulmates meant for each other, and the end point of the relationship was that the two of them were meant for each other, but that wasn't planned to happen by episode 8. It just took it to episode uh, 13. And uh, Claudia Black joked that this was her favorite episode of the season because she got to kiss Ben Browder. All right, so Jason, what did you think of The Flax? You know, I, I think it was definitely an episode that had some highs and lows. We're, we're definitely well into the characters in the season. I think that, and I will, we'll hit some highlights, but I think that the Aaron and, and John uh, scenes were really good. I think some of the rest of it was a lot of filler and just kind of moving the characters in the background. But I think that it, it definitely moved the plot forward and we got a lot of uh, character development between Aaron and John. Yeah, I'll, I'll kind of agree with that. I the Aaron and John parts were the best. The other bits with Stans and the pirates either alternately annoyed me or just maybe confused. And I guess we'll, we'll get into that <laughs> as we go. Yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll say that if if this was done today and, and they weren't trying to focus as much on getting every actor and every character on the screen as much as I think they were at the time this was filmed, you might see this as almost more of a isolated episode where you might see the other characters at the very beginning, you know, even up to the implication of uh, Dargo leaving to go check uh, for the map. And then you wouldn't see anything more of them until the very end when John and Aaron are rescued and the rest of the episode would focus solely on them. I, I think it lost a lot with the bouncing back and forth and trying to make sure everybody had screen time. Yeah. Cause with, you know, reading the, the recap, it's basically like John and Aaron do this back on the ship. They do that. Back on the pod, back on Stance's pod, they do this. Back on the ship, it's like, it's, yeah, it, it bounced around like every like minute. They're jumping around to the different, I don't know, A, B, and C, D, whatever, how many plots, you know, that they're trying to <laughs> cram into this thing. But when, yeah, nowadays it'd be like 75, 80% Aaron and Crichton on the pod and more, um, like, what, what do you call it? Depth, seriousness. And lighthearted, you know, they're having they're trying to make fun of it while they're being serious about what's happening. But that would be what it would be mostly about. And then, oh yeah, the rest of them are trying to find them. And I think it would have helped the, a little more with the the Dargo entry scene, right? If we didn't have any idea that he had even considered giving up his chase for them, I think it could have worked that a little bit. But overall, I enjoyed it. Yeah, and I guess the parts that we liked, like it's nice to see that John's continuing to learn about the new technology he's surrounded with, you know, on this part of the universe. You know, he's trying to figure out how to fly something besides Farscape 1. And, you know, it's not easy. You know, I mean, you would think because, you know, space civilizations should be like really more advanced than ours that maybe their ships would be easier to control, right? But not the case for humans or maybe like what's easy for Sebations and Luxons and whatever isn't necessarily the same aesthetic or thought processes of how you would control a ship as compared to a human, how they would fly it. Yeah, and, and I like the fact that they use the the fact that he's putting a lot more of Moya's technology into his pod slash ship, whatever you want to call it, um, the Farscape one. And that's part of his impetus for familiarizing himself with the technology, not to mention he's completely dependent on it in their universe, right? I mean, he's, he's not exactly going to find any Earth tech laying around. So it, it kind of makes sense and gives him a, a logical reason to do what he does. 
yeah, I mean, he's kind of stuck with the fact that, yeah, you're not going to find, you know, you know, off the shelf, uh, you know, micro cassette, rec- you know, recording device, whatever, you know, <laughs> in this side of the universe. So you have to make do with what you have, right? And integrate it with, you're not changing, you can't rebuild the outside of the ship, but you can at least replace the parts inside and make things still work. And um, we actually have some pilot scenes, finally, other than just him, you know, regurgitating what Moya is saying or what, the, you know, what they're seeing. So it was kind of funny how, I guess, to get the crew's attention when they're arguing, as always, that he admit he has the comm system emit like a loud shrieking noise. And he's like, oh, I'm sorry, I hit the wrong button. So, you know, pilot, a sense of humor. Who knew? Yeah, good, good humor from pilot. We definitely need more pilot in the episodes. He's brought out occasionally, but we don't get to see him near as much. I mean, I kind of figured when we started that we'd have him equal to at least Rigel, uh, especially as much as you figure that animatronic slash puppet cost them. But it seems like he just barely gets any screen time. So more pilot. Yep, I agree. Yeah, he he can't move from his little chamber, so it's good to at least have him interacting holographically or whatever with the crew, and at least showing more of a personality than just the subservient. Okay, cut my arm off. I'm fine with it in previous episodes, and you know <laughs> that's all we get, right? So right. And also on moving along with the character development stuff, finally nobody just wants to leave John and Aaron behind. They weren't like. Okay, we're out of here. They're gone. Oh, well, it's been five seconds. Let's leave, guys. So at least we're finally getting away from that, what do you call it, plot device, drama drama element, whatever. Yeah, I, th- I think, and I might mention this some when we talk about the next episode also, but I, if, if I were laying this out, I'd have flipped these two episodes in, in order because obviously the next episode, without spoiling too much, is going to be addressing a marooned crew member. And it seems like in this episode, we've already moved past the will they leave them, will they not thing. So the, it, it, in my mind, these could have been flipped and had a little more consistency, but I agree. It, it's it's time to be a, a team and not worry about leaving, not leaving. So it's good to see that they just kind of don't even mention that this time and roll straight into rescue mode. Yeah, I mean, there's more room or more elements they could have for conflict within the crew or little tension building moments than just you left me or oh they're gone who cares so yeah i'm glad that they're kind of moving past that until next time <laughs> yeah well until we'll talk about next episode briefly for one little scene but yeah and i guess moving into the, some of the parts that confused me or annoyed me about this episode i know i'm gonna get into all of it because whatever but something about sci-fi shows and their games that nobody knows about but does everybody know about this Tetic game? Like, this is the first time we've seen it, and two different sets of pirates have come on board going, you have Tetic? That's great, let's play. I'm like, you want to play now? I'm like, what? Like, is this, like, the hottest game in the in the universe, and you just have to play it? It's, like, addictive? Like, I don't understand why both these, well, former pirate and current pirate just wanted to, like, drop everything and start playing for, with Rigel on this game. I, 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 I didn't get it. It does seem kind of contrived how at the beginning episode you've got everybody complaining. Well, you got Rigel complaining about being bored uh, as everybody kind of has their issues at the beginning of the episode. And his is that he's sitting there banging the stick that we have no concept of how this game's played. And it seems like everybody who comes on board the ship after that is immediately drawn to the game, right? And it's, uh, like you say, it's it's almost like a, okay, now we're going to focus on this game because we, we spent some money on the set piece and we want to make sure everybody centers around it for this episode so yeah i don't know if it'll be a recurring thing that everybody's addicted there or has to play this game that they're familiar with but it's definitely the sabak of this sea uh 
this episode anyway. Yeah, and I guess even though I didn't quite like the game, or at least the addiction or the obsession with the game idea, I did kind of like how Rigel used it to play the pirate leader into giving him into losing on purpose and feeding him the wrong coordinates or the wrong com frequency so that they would leave and go like totally the wrong direction. I mean, it did, it did seem kind of too perfect, like the, that just kind of fit exactly like how you want it to happen, which usually, does, usually doesn't happen except for on TV shows, but I'll, I'll give him credit for that at least. And and you get a chance for, for Rigel to be competent. I mean, yeah, most of the time in, in all their adventures and, and things you see them do, Rigel comes off as the inconsequential gag. And here we see that he's actually really good at playing other people. And so I did like that aspect of it as well. Yeah, and, and these two episodes, which we'll get into next episode too, Rigel has a lot more to do also. So they're kind of broadening Rigel's um, horizons or his character development. You know, he's, he's growing, he's learning. He's not just the glutton, scheming con artist, although this was kind of a scheming con artist thing too, but it actually worked this time. So <laughs> got to get them up at earnest keep, man. Yep. And I guess the only other annoying thing for me anyway was um, Stanza's ship to me, made no sense. It's an advanced space-capable ship, but yet it works like an old locomotive from the 1800s. You, know, you have to put like the, these little combustible dolls or food or whatever it was into like a furnace and then use bellows to like pump air, and then you're like whacking parts of it which to make it work, which, okay, I mean, it's funny when you high-tech thing they whack i mean you know you know han solo goes into the cockpit of the Millennium falcon it lights up the lights go off he bangs the side of it and it comes back on again okay that's funny i get it at least you aren't using air bellows on the falcon to make it fly i, I it's that, that part is really every time they kept going back to his ship i was it just kept taking me out of the episode because i kept being like why <laughs> what's the point so i'll admit I, I laughed i thought that was humorous the first time i saw it you can't think about it too much because it does break down under any form of scrutiny at all. I, I just kind of looked at it as a steampunk type approach and, and moved on, even though steampunk spaceship doesn't hold up too well, like you say, when you're working off of some kind of bellows and uh, furnace. But again, I, I laughed when I saw it and then just, you know, don't look back, just keep moving. Yeah. I mean, it's a single person ship. So, I, you know, obviously, yeah, you're, you're everything. You're the pilot, the engineer, the custodial staff, whatever. You're, you're everybody. So I get that it's going to be run down and beat up and have problems. But I think they kind of like, to me, they kind of went that one step too far. But yeah, I mean, other than taking me out of the episode. Okay. It's cute. I don't know. Um, I guess the other couple of the big points, I guess, was obviously the now that uh, Aaron and Crichton have effectively expressed their love for one another or their feelings towards each other. There are kind of hints of it in other episodes here and there. Not necessarily each one didn't know. But kind, of, you, kind of like one person knew at that point and then the other person kind of knew later. But now it's out in the open. Each of them know exactly how each other feels. And as the creator said, they didn't plan this. But once it did happen, they're pretty much, yep, they're perfect for each other. Great. Let's go for it. Yeah, and as we kind of discussed at the beginning, the Crichton Aaron pieces were definitely the best part of this episode, and I'd have been fine if that was really ninety percent of it. So definitely, definitely, these were the scenes that that caught my attention and thought I, I really enjoyed the most. So it's going to be fun to see how that plays forward as we go further to the next couple of seasons. Yeah, because as I said before, I kind of came in after this, and so they were kind of a thing ish. I think when I came on, so it's kind of nice to see like how it started and like what 
I guess, finally brought it to the surface for both of them, you know, and then obviously they're trying to play it off like, oh, it's not gonna happen again. No, that was just a, you know, we're dying. We just, you know, had a final craze act of whatever you want to call it, lust, love, or dying. Let's do something, you know, but yeah, it's kind of cool to see how it started. Yeah. And in typical TV show fashion, we'll have to do that a couple more times before it breaks down. Right. So yeah, they're not going to have to build back up to it again, where it's like, you know, remember when we said we forget about it? Well, do you really want to forget about it? You know, whatever. You know, do you want to forget about it? Well, not really, if you don't want to. You know, who knows? I don't know. We'll see how it, you know, fleshes out as it goes on here. Um, I guess the only other kind of character developy thing on here was, I mean, we've talked, we talked about it before, how everybody wants to go home. They have no idea where they are. And, you know, obviously this is a prime chance for Dargo to get on board a Luxon ship that's out there. So they must know where they are, hopefully. And they'll have maps. But he does finally, I guess, let go of that, at least for now anyway, by realizing he's putting his friends ahead of getting home, right? So he basically leaves any chance of seeing his son again. He thinks, who knows, you know, obviously writers can write whatever they want, but at least he's kind of evolving past his selfishness, I guess you would say. Yeah, and I'd say this is probably the part that I have to just make sure I don't look at too closely because it does annoy me is the concept of only these random people who they always get prevented from accessing are the people who have maps. There's there's one person who has a map. Oh, we can't get it. This person, there's one on this cruiser. Oh, we can't get it. And it's like, I realize that's the concept is they can't get home, but it seems like it's convenient that every one of the only people who have maps are the ones that they keep getting prevented from. If this many people have maps, then there should be one that's easy to get to. But again, don't look too close. Just move on and we'll keep going. Yeah, it's kind of like, it's not like a recurring gag, but it's like a recurring theme of we're trying to get home Oh, it's right here. I almost had it. Oh, oh, too bad. But yeah, so. So, so I mean, you know at, 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 some, at some point with four seasons, they have to get out of the uncharted territories or at least know where to go and decide either to go or not to go. But yeah, it's like, okay, we got it. They're lost. Okay, can we please stop? I'm having uh, flashbacks to uh, the Dungeons and Dragons cartoon, you know, when each episode was, oh, we're almost to get, this is our gateway home. Oh, this thing's going to keep us from going through, well, next episode. And we just keep going. And I feel like that's, that's almost the theme is, you know, we just need the the gateway, but we need the plot to let us go through the gateway. Yeah, it only works for so long. And then you start losing the audience. So hopefully they will stop this at some point. (laughs) I mean, but whatever, you know, I don't want to be a dead, a dead horse here, but yeah. (laughs) Speaking of dead horses, no, there's no dead horses in the next episode, but uh, you want to hit the next one? Yeah, I mean, I can't really think of anything else to talk about this one. This is probably, I guess, apart from the DNA Mad Scientist episode, probably one of the more, I don't say annoying, but less popular, less fun, interesting episode of the season. So like, yeah, the less we talk about this one, I guess we kind of hit all the good points. Yeah, again, except for the Crichton Aaron stuff, I'll agree. All right, so episode 14, Jeremiah Crichton. So we open with Dargo and Crichton attempting to unblock a vent on Moya that's been clogged up when Crichton started his pod's engines. Uh, They start to bicker, and Crichton continues to be fed up, and he's now used the last of his module's fuel, which now leaves him dependent completely on Moya technology. He leaves Dargo in the middle of the work, and when Zan tries to talk to him, he snaps at her as well. Uh, telling her to leave him alone. Uh, he tells Aaron he's going for a drive and that he's sick from, of everyone on Moya, including her. He loads up into Farscape 1 and uh, takes off, but Moya senses that her baby's at risk and she tries to compensate, which means immediate starburst. Pilot says there's no time to get Crichton back on board and they starburst away, leaving John stranded. 
We jump forward three months and find Crichton laying on top of Farscape 1 down on a planet. He catches a crab-like creature called a Shakloon. And a woman, we find out later named Lashala, comes out to speak with him. And he asks if she wants some of the food. She says that offering food to a female on Aquaria signals his affection for her. She gives him a map that she made, of, made for him of uh, the stars to try to get him home. A man called Rokon comes out and says that her father demands she return to the village. Once alone with John, Rokon tells him that he'll probably need Aquaria, and Crichton says it's the first place that made, that's made him feel like he can live with that. Uh, meanwhile, Moya's still searching, and it's been a quarter of a cycle, and everyone's getting tired, but Dargo feels guilty about them driving Crichton away, and Aaron agrees that they should keep looking. Uh, this is despite Zan wanting to give up and move on. Back on the planet, Crichton goes to see the Grandir, Kato Ray who wants to talk privately with him. He wants to discuss his daughter's heart. Crichton says that he chose to build his home away from the village so that he wouldn't interfere with their ways. Uh, we find out that Rokon is jealous that Crichton sits beside the Grandir, and Rokon's mother, the high priestess Nira, says that John seems to have worked his way into Linshala's heart. She wants her son to marry uh, so he can become the Grandir. So we have a little bit of ambition going on there. Rigel and Dargo land on the planet, but the pod lost all the energy when it went to land. They spot Crichton's pod on their last pass, and uh, Rigel's sled loses power, and he falls to the ground. Meanwhile, Zan wants to either her or Aaron to go down to the planet and find Rigel and Dargo, but Aaron says they can't go without more data. Aaron says that Zan was more agreeable back when she was a priest, but Zan tells her not to go there. There are some lines we should never cross. Back on the planet, Crichton's on his way home when Rokon and some guards ambush him, but just in time, Dargo appears and rescues him. Crichton tells him to get away from him and Dargo, for Dargo to go back wherever he came from. Rokon returns to the village, but is injured, and Lashala tends his wounds. Kato Ray says they need to find out more about this other beast, but Nira says Crichton will just bring more evil to Aquara. Rigel is shocked by Crichton's reaction and says that he's the one who sabotaged Moria. Crichton says that they all abandoned him, but Dargo says that he forced Moya to compensate and she starburst on her own. He asks Crichton if he really thinks that they abandoned him when they spent the last quarter of a cycle trying to find him. Crichton is surprised to find that they searched for him and says Rigel and Dargo are stuck there with no power, just like he is. Back on Moya, Pilot has produced a topographic bioprint to try to locate the others on the planet, while Crichton tells Dargo that this is the first place that he's found peace, and Lashala comes and asks why Crichton brought Dargo here. She says that Crichton must go to her father and convince him that Dargo is not a threat. On their way to the village, Rokon and the guards ambush them again. This time they capture them and take Crichton's possessions, including Rigel, who was hiding. Crichton and Dargo are charged with assaulting the Grandir's personal guards, and the crown carries a sentence of death. But since he believes that Crichton is not entirely to blame, he will only banish them. Uh, Nero reminds them that this law is explicit, when all of a sudden Rigel comes out of the bag, startling everyone. The Aquarians start bowing and worshipping him, since he's similar in appearance to the statue of their god. Dargo tells Rigel that they're playing a celebration for him where he will fulfill his part in the prophecy. Only Dargo and Rigel don't know what that is. Rigel says to Nira that he needs the sacred text to fulfill his part of the prophecy, but she says that only the priestens can read it. Once they get the text, Dargo asks Rigel if he can read it, and he says yes, because it is written in ancient Hynerian. Meanwhile, Crichton finds Lenshala, who is upset because he didn't tell her about Rigel being their Masada. She says that he protected them through the priestens and will take them off the planet whether they want to go or not. Crichton tries to tell her that Rigel is not a spiritual being and their Timbala is wrong. 
But she says that if he is the true Masada, he'll rise up and lead them to the light. If not, he will be killed. Back in the village, the Aquarians have started the celebration, and Rigel tells Dargo and Crichton that the ancestors of the Aquarians were colonists sent out during the reign of Rigel X to expand the influence of his people's monarchy. But they were abandoned, and the power drain is intentional. They were kept here by it to devotedly worship the family of Rigel. The priests have made a lot of the religion up and elevated them to gods in order to elevate the priests. He says that uh, he will explain that to them, but Dargo says the villagers won't li- listen. Crichton leaves, but Rigel says it's a metaphor, and he can't lead them to the light. Uh, but Nira overhears them talking. Zan and Aaron send down a projectile to try and let the others know the location of the power drain. Meanwhile, Rigel tries to explain that they have a lot to accomplish, but Nira confronts him. Rigel says that it's a metaphor that he will rise up, uh, but Nira says that Timbala does not require them to wait, and Rigel says that he can't help them. Nira calls him a false god, and they seize Rigel. Dargo and Crichton get out of the way just in time, and the projectile lands in a nearby lake. Crichton goes to get it and finds the biomap inside. The Aquarians are planning Rigel's death when Crichton interrupts. He says that they have been betrayed and that there is a power draining device to keep their machinery from working. Rokon goes to attack Crichton, but Dargo stops him. Crichton says the machines function when their ancestors arrived, but they've been lied to, first by those who left them and then by the priestons. Nira says attacking the priestons is the highest sacrilege, but Rigel says no, that would be purposely keeping your people ignorant and subjugated for your own glorification. Rigel says that he has proof in the Tambala, which Kotore says only the priestons can read. Nira tells Rokon to kill Crichton, but Crichton notices some little handprints in the statue of the god. He grabs Rigel and places Rigel's hands on it, and the statue falls apart, revealing a great light. All of a sudden, Rigel's sled starts working, and he rises up on it. The people bow to him, but he stops them, saying he is only their sovereign, a worthy being like them. Katare riches that Rigel could stay, and he will tell the peacekeepers nothing if they come seeking him. He gives Rigel some food as a gift and says they've given the Aquarians the greatest gift of all, their freedom. Crichton thanks Rokon and Lashala, and she says they'll miss him. Crichton tells Dargo that he's got some apologies to make, but Dargo tells him to forget it, and they leave. A little trivia about this episode. Uh, the title and inspiration of the episode came from one of Ben Browder's favorite movies, Jeremiah Johnson. Uh, David Kemper was at Browder's house for dinner, and Browder's wife mentioned the movie to Kemper. Kemper stated, quote, Instantly I had an idea for doing Jeremiah Crichton. Crichton goes native, lives among the people, and grows a beard. The next morning I had the story in my head. Also, two of the last lines of the dialogue, in which Dargo asked Crichton, Was it worth the trouble, human? And Crichton responds, Huh, what trouble? Close looks mirror the ending dialogue of Jeremiah Johnson. Also, during the production, the show was hit with lots of problems, including a hailstorm. Pete Coogan remembers the storm, quote, Hailstones the size of cricket balls came down. They came through the creature shop roof and through the production office windows. Uh, the episode also marked the largest use of the CG version of Rigel. This was due to the script by Doug Hayes not taking the puppet's limitations into account. Rockney O'Bannon also admits that this episode was not a favorite for many people, but there are still things in it that I find fun. He pointed out that this was a big episode for Rigel, and it was a good opportunity to show that as much as we try to avoid adversity and wish it never happened, it can change us for the better. Rigel is being treated with the deference he thinks he deserves, but it doesn't sit right with him. Even he comes to realize that it's just not right. That was an important adjustment for him. And finally, this episode is considered one of the poorest made and made light of by the cast and crew DVD commentary, which carried the title, quote, 
when bad things happened to good shows, which consisted mostly of criticisms over how the episode turned out. So what do you think, Eric? Uh, well, first off, I guess when we were predicting what the title meant last episode, uh, you got it right on the money. This was Jeremiah Johnson, which I had never heard of or seen before, so I didn't know what to expect, but you know, good job. You got it. <laughs> well, even a blind squirrel finds a nut every once in a while, but I, it was a little unfair since I was familiar with the movie. So now I'm going to have to go watch it to see if there's any parallels and stuff, which I guess the last couple lines seem to be, so I'll have to look out for that if I, if I can find it somewhere. It's got to be out there. It's, it's a pretty popular movie. But um, I, I kind of do and don't, now that I'm thinking more about it, agree with the cast that it wasn't necessarily their best episode. But uh, it's not quite as bad as like Star Trek Next Generation's like Code of Honor bad, where they had like horrible racial stereotypes and whatever. You know, and this obviously did have its good character moments, which we're going to get into. I didn't really mind, I guess, the, like the clothing style and like the culture of the planet, because I guess you have to show some kind of what happens with you have no advanced technology and it's been how many thousands of years because like Rigel's what Rigel's the 16th Dominar and this is Rigel the 10th so if Rigel was like in prison for 130 years and who knows how long so this could be like a thousand years 1500 years you know who knows right if how long a Hanarian region you know, monarch lives or reigns right so I don't really mind that they went with the style that they went with since I guess if you're a designer trying to create a culture from scratch it's easier to take something closer to home that you know versus trying to make up something for whole cloth so I mean it was Okay, I guess. Yeah, there's definitely some shortcuts to our knowledge and, and association. You know, if, if you if you put somebody in these clothings and these type of cultures, we, we have associations built from our historical reference that point us at this. We know what we're seeing, right? We may, You don't have to spell it out. It doesn't take very long to, to convey what they're trying to say because they're using familiar imagery. I, I will say I'm probably the oddball. I didn't mind this one at all. You know, once you get past the, the trope of, uh, marooned on a uh, primitive society planet slash island slash you know whatever fits the the model of the story i think this was better better done than i've seen a lot of other marooned culture shows be done yeah if we're going to copy a stereotype yeah and i was gonna say you know I, I live in rural pennsylvania so i mean to me yeah if they use like you know the amish for like a non-technological culture okay fine you know i i, I get it immediately i know what you're thinking i know, I know what you're going for okay fine but yeah, I mean, I didn't think it was as bad necessarily as the cast thought, because you know, I didn't obviously listen to the DVD commentary to hear what their complaints were. But, you know, I, I thought it was a nice, passable story. Yeah, like I said, it, it worked for me. I, I've, I would rank this higher than some of the others we've seen, and we'll probably hit that as we go. But, you know, again, a little bit of a trope, but it, it moved the story forward. I would have put it in order before the other one, um, just from a character standpoint. I think the other one made more sense to go after, but... That's nitpicking. Yeah, we'll kind of talk about that here in a second, probably as we talk about people's motivations here. But I guess to start things off with, I mean, I, I, I'll give Crichton his temper tantrum. I mean, it's been at, at least, well, at that point, probably a year or so. And now, you know, three months later, that it's nice time jump, right? So, I mean, he's been, he's been stuck there for a year. You know, his ship's been, you know, basically getting more and more like the technology of where he's, where he's at, not where he came from. So I don't know if that kind of feels frustrating or disappointing or whatever. So I understand it. I get it. And yeah, I mean, like if we get upset or want to get away from people or our house, we like, would take a walk or get in our car and go for a drive. So yeah, sure. He's, he's going to get in the spaceship. He's going to fly around Moya just to clear his head, calm down. You know, no big deal. Agreed. I mean, we all, we all have hobbies and yeah, one of his is, 
obviously working on his ship. So it makes sense that that would be his safe space that he wants to go get some time. It totally worked. And I, I, I even like the contrivance of that being the trigger from Moya to, to Starburst, right? That she was protecting the baby at that point. So I didn't even mind that that setup. It, it definitely worked in the context of the historical pregnancy storyline. And then... Again, hopefully the final use of this plot device, that he really thinks that they abandoned him. Which, I mean, it kind of, you could maybe see where it looked like that, but, I mean, come on, guys. It's like, what, the, we're like 14 episodes now? This is the, what, half a dozenth time that they pulled this one? I'm like, okay, I think we're done with this. But at least finally at the end, he realizes that he overreacted, especially when Dark was like, look, if we abandoned you, why are we here three months later after having looked for you that entire time, dude? Let's, you know, wake up. <laughs> okay. Uh, agreed. We beat this one to death, but you know they beat the plot point to death, so it's only fair. Uh, <laughs> I will say that the the one thing that I actually scratched my head at a little bit on this, and I just don't, I don't think we quite have an understanding of Starburst yet. But and I realized that some of the Starbursts they they don't know where they are in the region because they don't know how that original Starburst worked. But by this point, can't couldn't they have just reversed this Starburst and found him? It seems like three months is a long time to reverse a single Starburst. Yeah, I, I didn't think about that, but yeah, good point. Like, if, if they knew kind of where they were and then came back to that general area, yeah, like, how many, like, Earth-type, or Earth-type, whatever, how many planets that could support Sebations, humans, Luxons, whatever, were there in that area, right? Like, how densely populated is the Uncharted Territories? It kind of sounds like it would should be, like, vast because it's Uncharted, right? If it was really packed together, you could probably chart it pretty quickly, right? So it would be Uncharted. <laughs> so, yeah, I, 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 I get that point. And I guess... This time, to be a little different, this time Zan wants to give up the search. You know, she's like, Let's, we search for a while, I'm done. And Dargo and Aaron basically override her and keep, you know, keep searching. Which, I mean, maybe this is some kind of fallout from her not being a priest anymore uh, for, over the last couple episodes, which even Aaron commented on and Zan kind of, kind of really mad about that and kind of threatened her, like, don't bring it up again. Yeah, we're definitely seeing some changes in Zan post that episode with her giving up the priesthood. So... That's another point for continuity. I'll also say, as much as I, I've said a couple times now, that I think this should have been flipped with the other episode. The one piece of continuity that I did think carried through a little bit was that when they were talking about calling off the search or keeping the search going, Dargo was deferring to Aaron, and Aaron was the really the, the one who wanted to keep searching. And I, I guess I'll give that credit for her and John's relationship post the last episode. So, you know, maybe it does make a little sense to have it here just for that one relationship plot point. Yeah, and I guess even, what, two episodes ago, I guess Dargo f with the Bounty Hunters, Dargo finally, he and John have some kind of understanding. Like, they're not friends, per se, but they're, whatever I'm call it, allies, comrades. You know, they're in the same boat together, so to speak, so that they maybe are building that loyalty, that camaraderie of, like, you know, I'll do anything to help my friend. Not friend, because they weren't friends, but you know, you know what I mean? Yeah, although I will say after this episode, I kind of get the sense that that's changing. You know, now that he's rescued him once in the last episode, and then now this episode, again, came. he was the one that came down and got him on the planet. I kind of think that we're moving past that ally stage a little bit. But agreed, that was that was their agreement. Yeah, because I mean, maybe now, you know, John's not uh, what, disappointing uh, Dargo anymore. I don't know, we'll see. At, at least John does admit that he, he, you know, he wanted to apologize for running off in a tiff, and Dargo's like, yeah, don't worry about it. So, yeah. you know, that's shows that kind of growth of their two characters yeah we've reached acceptance if not friendship yet so definitely forward progress and i guess that the big character development besides you know Crichton going native and 
trying to do the, his version of the Prime Directive and stay away, away from the culture, is is Rigel. I mean, this is de- definitely, I guess, the last half, like like a Rigel-centric kind of episode, where at first, when they worship him as God, he's like, hey, this is fantastic. You know, he's got people fawning over him, giving him food. They came to bathe him, which he's like, hey, all right. And But then he finally, after he realizes what's going on, actually kind of feels sorry or guilty for what his predecessor, Rigel the Tenth, did by stranding everybody there and actually kind of wanted to tell them the truth and not lie about it or try to bluff his way out of it, which I thought was writers and creators said was definitely a step up with Rigel. Yeah. I think when you put these two back to back, you have Rigel in his element, right? Bluffing and and getting his way with the pirates. And then you turn around and have him have to do a, an emotional out of his comfort zone growth. So yeah, these were definitely two good Rigel episodes. Yeah, I mean, he's not just like a one-note, the, the blowhard, the liar, the cheat, the, the sneaky person. He actually cares because, you know, these are his people, effectively colonists, I guess, from how many uh, civilizations or worlds that the Hynerians controlled back then. You know, so he definitely feels guilty about what his predecessor did and wanted to try to, for once, just explain, yeah, this is what happened. We'll try to help you guys, but, you know, I'm not a god. I'm just you know, a nice, wonderful person like you guys are, and hey, let's all be friends. And almost didn't work out, but <laughs> did in the end, because obviously then it'd be a short show and that'd be in the series. But Yeah, we'd just have the, the Aaron and Zan show, so. <laughs> yeah, because they're the only ones left. So then, then they could leave. It's like, well, their power down there, oh, well, we're gone, see ya. So then they finally could have actually left and abandoned the people. Be <laughs> <laughs> a way to go out. Any other things to talk about no i think i think we've wrapped this these two episodes up any final thoughts on the others before we close this book yeah I mean, it's a pretty straightforward kind of episode like we kind of said not the best necessarily to watch back to back but yeah jeremiah Crichton was definitely better than the flags at least for probably both of our both of our opinions if i can speak for you so i mean it's probably it, they aren't at the top of the list uh, i mean the flags is probably closer to the bottom for me this one's i don't know middle-ish i think yeah, I think if I if I took the Aaron and John segments and just ignored everything else in the Flax and just took that one plot point, it ranks high middle. The rest of the episode drags it down to the low middle. But both of these were very much much higher rated, in my opinion, than like DNA Mad Scientist, which is so far my least favorite episode. I'll probably beat on it a couple times, but uh, <laughs> it's an easy one. But uh, yeah, I think I think these are I think I rate them higher than you do. But agreed. Uh, there's definitely some some points in both of them. Yeah, because like if you're like the, the completest and have to watch everything, like we are for this podcast, you have to watch it. When some people would say skip it, but then if you skip the flax, you would miss the not consummation because they didn't go that far, but like the the realization that Craig and Aaron have a thing for each other. So you kind of have to watch that all the way through to get that. Otherwise, you'd miss that part, and then like later you'd be like, what happened? Huh? Yeah, I mean, again, from a completist standpoint, we're getting the buildup. So it's always good to see the, the precursor as we get further down. And I think I did say when we started this podcast that we'll be watching everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly. Well, these weren't ugly, but yeah, not necessarily good, good. But anyway. Agreed. All right, so next time, as you mentioned, it's back to everybody follow whichever list you, you find because they're all the same. So we've got episode 15, Durker Returns which sounds like Durka was that Sebastian peacekeeper who imprisoned and tortured Rigel for 130 years. So it sounds like that probably was not his body on that ship a couple episodes ago. Interesting. I had forgotten that name, so thanks for the reminder on that one. Yeah, I think the only reason he thought it was him is because he recognized the ring on the corpse's hand. So 
probably somebody else stole the guy's ring and that wasn't him. I don't know. We'll see. And uh, episode 16, A Human Reaction, which is very descriptive and means nothing. So we'll see what that means. Yeah, that one's open-ended, so we'll see what goes there. <laughs> yeah. That one will have no idea. So it'll be fun to watch. Actually, we both don't know about any of them. So we'll see how we go. We'll see how we do. All right. So that's your homework for next time. Episode 15 and 16. And we will see you then. Goodbye.